Well, we're going to finish up uh, today. I trust that I'm at the right place here. We'll pick this up in a second. But this is uh, theology of worship, just finishing up that section. And we'll cover that for the first few minutes of our time together. And then we'll cover... Christology part one. So we actually have a two part uh, with Christology and I am almost certain it will be more than two parts because it is a long uh, section and rightfully so. Uh, So we will take a little bit of time here in our understanding of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is, um, well, one of our favorite topics of all time. So um, so let me go go ahead and get us started with a word of prayer and we'll get it going on the final parts of theology of worship. Father, we thank you so much for gathering us together as your people in your church, among those who are called out by your name. And we thank you that you have qualified us to worship you, that you have made us acceptable before your presence, for otherwise we are not acceptable. We are failing and We are in need of your mercy and your grace to be that living sacrifice together as one body for your glory. And we know that this was accomplished because of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we will be studying more about him this morning, and we look forward to that. And we pray that it would thrill our hearts toward worship, even as we talk about some of those elements here at the beginning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so last time, uh, this again, two weeks ago, when we talked about uh, a theology of worship, we were talking about worship as described in the Old Testament and the sacrifices specifically associated with worship and the fact that worship requires sacrifice. Uh, yes, so, you know we can look at that from a perspective of animals needing to be slaughtered kind of sacrifice, but in the sense that also sacrifice was really um, a way to show that it required something. You have to give up something that's very dear and precious to you. And that's the kind of sacrifice that is required when it comes to worship. We don't often think about it that way, or at least I should say we as in the broader evangelical community. They certainly don't usually commun- or think about it this way, where worship really is something that should re- cause you to sacrifice something. Uh, Instead, worship today is more of an entertainment industry in the church, and it's not something that you come giving of yourself and sacrificing uh, a great deal of yourself, your time, your energies, even your your thought. You you submit your thought process in that worship time uh, to absolute and total focus and dedication to the one whom you are worshiping. That is just not really the mindset that people come to church today with. And that's really sad because that's not really worship at all. So when we look at it from a New Testament perspective, the last time I think we finished up looking at it from an Old Testament perspective, we have here um, the principle of giving as worship is really the same. The fact that it requires sacrifice. It requires uh, a sort of... Um, giving of yourself for that. Uh, I have a quote here uh, from, uh, let me actually see who this is actually from, from Ross. This is uh, Alan Ross who, who wrote extensively on worship and uh, I think on the Psalms as well. He says, It is not so easy to transfer the rules of tithes and offerings over to the church. Uh, and so um, I think hopefully I'm on the right section with the PowerPoint, but if it becomes clear that I'm not, then... I will find the right place. Um, So he says, It is not so easy to transfer the rules of tithes and offerings over to the church. A simple 10% is a small part of what the Israelites paid. Now, when we're talking about tithes and offerings, again, this is the giving aspect, right? This is you're sacrificing yourself, not just in terms of offering sacrifices of animals, but you're sacrificing your money. You're giving to um, to the Lord. You're giving to the temple. You're giving to the priests, and you're giving to really the nation as a whole of Israel. And so. When we're talking about the New Testament, and and the reason why this is brought up is because if I go backwards here, I think we had finished on this slide where we talked, and it was very fast. I know at the very end we went really quick, but the tithing that they would give was like a 10% tithe, but then there was like a second 
tithe of 10%, and then they would do a third and a six-year tithe for the poor. They had a lot of uh, taxing that was done. Now, to be fair, this was also like the na- the national tax, right? This is like their nation too. So we give national taxes as well. So it's not like you should be expected to be giving so much of the chunk of your income that it, to the church that it's got to mirror exactly the way Israel did it. There was a very specific reason why they gave that much. But um, I'm going to almost counter that in a, here in a second and <laughs> talk about why literally everything that we have is owned by the Lord. And so in that sense, our heart should be one of much giving and that should not just be bound to a very specific number necessarily. So carrying over the rules of tithing from the Old Testament Israel to the New Testament, it's just, you can't really do that. That's not really what it was intended to be anyways. Uh, These were specifically for the nation of Israel, which um, we're not in that nation anymore. But at the same time, um, coming back over here, we have been purchased... And therefore, all that we have belongs to God. And so when we give, we give out of a heart of full generosity that's not just tied down to necessarily a percentage of our income. Uh, That it can ebb and flow, especially as we see that there are needs to be met in the church. And we want to give to those needs. And we're willing to even give up things of our own that we don't usually give up so that we would give to those who are in need and that actually serves the ministry of the body of Christ. Uh, So we would argue the fact that all that we have belongs to the Lord ultimately. All of our time belongs to Him. All of our talents, all of our possessions belong to Him. And so because of that, the Christian's giving is an acknowledgement that we owe everything back to Christ. I mean, He has purchased our eternal salvation. So we owe our very lives to Him, let alone the things that we have in this life. All right, I'm going to be moving a little bit quickly here because we'll see how much we can get through on the Christology after this. But Christ is the ultimate sacrifice when it comes to worship. Uh, as we have here a quote from Dr. Snyder, who used to teach at the Master Seminary and a good family friend of ours. He says, The culmination of Old Testament atoning sacrifices and of Old Testament worship and therefore uh, is it is the sacrificial basis for New Testament worship. So in other words, what we have pictured in the Old Testament with the Old Testament sacrifices, it really acts as the the basis for how we understand even our New Testament worship. And we don't always connect the two together because we're like, well, we're not slaughtering animals when we come to church. Right. But there are, there are aspects in place in the Old Testament when it comes to that sacrificial system that helps to inform us as to how our worship operates uh, even today under a New Testament model. Jesus, then, as the Lamb of God, is pictured, he's pictured as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, and he is that sacrificial lamb, like the Old Testament, you would offer a lamb sacrifice. So we, we have that sacrifice in him. No more blood needs to be shed. No more blood needs to be shed to atone for sins. And so that aspect, that's why we're not slaughtering animals today in the local church. He became a ransom for many, as it describes in Matthew chapter 20 and Mark chapter 10. And then also what we see even in the Last Supper, the Lord uh, describes how he is inaugurating a new covenant in his blood. And that that terminology we understand that even the new covenant itself is founded upon the fact that he suffered and he died and he shed his blood just like an old testament um, sacrificial animal who <clears throat> had his blood shed and comparing that you can even compare that with the old covenant when uh, Moses commanded or actually I should say the Lord really commanded Moses that he would sprinkle the blood of the animals on the people themselves so that's a picture there as well of that sacrifice being applied to the people and so we have that also pictured uh, in the New Testament as well and we see that even uh, more spiritually where Jesus 
sprinkles his blood upon us, uh, like in the book of Hebrews in chapter 10, and that's communicated there. In fact, specifically referring to the book of Hebrews, uh, we have another quote here from David Peterson where he says, all the important categories of Old Testament thinking on this subject, that would include the sanctuary, the sacrifice, the altar, the priesthood, the covenant, all of those Old Testament, Old Covenant terms are taken up and related to the person and work of Jesus Christ. So, we see that, and again, Hebrews really models this better than any other book. We see that where those, these terms from the Old Testament and the altar and uh, the lamb and the sacrifice that was made, all of these terms are pictured in Hebrews and then it's applied to Jesus Christ specifically and what he was accomplishing in the heavenly places on our, on our behalf. So what we really see is that the Old Testament really was the model it was kind of like the, the, the physical structure that was built. But then there was a greater heavenly reality that it was seeking to, to picture for us, to show for us. And I think this is a really important point. Oh, sorry, I forgot to put that one on there. The book of Hebrews makes clear the clear connection to Christ. But I think this is a really important point, that Christ is the one mediator when it comes to worship, and there is none other. And this is interesting, and I'm so glad that this was in the notes, but a worship leader is often thought of as the one who leads us into worship. But that's not really the way that it works. Jesus Christ is actually the one who leads us into worship. There is only one mediator who actually leads us into worship, and it is Jesus Christ himself. Just as there's, like, the pastor is not the head of the church. Jesus Christ is the head of the church. The pastor is simply an under-shepherd, a servant of the church in a specific area. Uh, The worship leader is not the one who leads us into worship. There is a sense in which he helps to guide that process, but he's not the ultimate one who's actually leading worship. It's actually Jesus Christ himself, because worship goes beyond just the behavioral things that we do in a service. It actually is something that's done from the heart. Worship is something that's done from the heart. And it cannot be measured always from a quantifiable, in a quantifiable way where we would just say, oh, well, he, he went through the rote process of worship, so that's worship. No, worship is actually something that's from the heart, ultimately. In fact, speaking of that, true worship costs us. And that's, that's how we would kind of really summarize all of this. True worship... There's another quote from Ross here. True, true worship is sacrificial. It costs. It cost our Lord his life on the cross as the perfect sacrifice that restored us to full communion with God. And so thus, our worship focuses on sacrifice in many ways. We serve God sacrificially, not to obtain mercy, but to demonstrate our gratitude and devotion to him because he created and redeemed us. We owe everything to him, end quote. That helps to encapsulate what worship is really about. It should, you should feel it. Like you should feel the sacrifice that it requires of you. That's what it really involves. And so that's why it's more than just singing, right? Because that doesn't really sacrifice a whole lot. Maybe for some of you it might, I don't know. But in general, right, it's, that's not it. That's not really what it's about. Worship is all involved. That's why the whole service that we do on a Sunday morning is really worship, right? Because there's even the fact of giving, where we give our money. There's a, a certain time in the worship service where we actually give our money. There's the preaching of God's word and the sacrifice that it takes to have a true heart every Sunday morning to submit yourself under the authority of the word of God and to be challenged by it and to change because of it. That is a sacrifice. It's a sacrifice that cuts deep to the core of every human heart. Uh, so there's, there's a lot of elements that um, are involved in worship and we see that modeled all throughout like a Sunday service, okay? And it's, it's done in a corporate setting, and there's a whole, whole aspect of that as well. In regards to the function of worship and some of the attributes and some of the things, and we've already covered some of these things already, but worship really involves fear and adoration. There should be a healthy fear, a healthy reverence, a, a, a healthy deference there. 
confession of sin, commitment, loyalty, devotion to the Lord, uh, sacrificial acts of service and ministry, a proclamation of what God is saying and what He has said, uh, specifically in His Word is what I'm referring to, um, praise, exaltation, adoration to God. That's where we often think about worship. This is the primary one that we're thinking about where it's like singing, and music, and that kind of thing. Uh, but also prayer, communication with God, and making our requests to Him, giving Him thanks uh, and honoring his name. And then um, even covenant affirmation, uh, responding to God's word, and then communicating, this is what we're going to do about that. We're going to live our lives in a, according to what we have learned or what we have studied, um, what we have heard proclaimed in the word of God. In terms of corporate worship, and by the way, worship, um, this is another thing in evangelical culture, worship is often thought of as a very individual extra, a very individualistic exercise. It's something between me and God. And uh, we often see that a lot, uh, just in a very personalized way. That's because we live in an American culture that's a very consumer-oriented con- uh, culture. It's, it's you know the business model of you're going after an individual consumer and trying to solicit their... Um, you know, their business. But this really worship in the Bible, not just in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament, is very, very corporate. And I could go to several passages to prove that to you. Passages that often we think are individual, like Romans 12, verses 1 through 2, which we often think, I need to offer myself as a living sacrifice to God. No, that's not what that's saying. It's actually a corporate call. It's actually saying, you are to offer yourself yourselves, plural, as a living sacrifice, singular. That's a really important point. I often get, it's so funny, I, have, I teach a Romans class and I have students, I literally ask this question in the class, like, um, why does it say plural, offer your bodies plural, as a living sacrifice, singular? And then I'll see people try to explain it, and as they go through it, they'll subtly, unknowingly start to say, so when, I op- when we offer our bodies as living sacrifices... They'll actually say that, and it's like, that missed the whole point of the question, right? Because we're so used to thinking about it that way. That's an individual thing. And that's not what's actually being described. And when you look at the context of Romans 11 and then Romans 12, and the bringing together of Jews and Gentiles into the body of Christ, and then each one is to use his gift for the corporate good, that's what really worship is about. It is a corporate thing. Because we're not individually just reflecting Jesus Christ as like, I am the full picture of who Jesus Christ is. It is actually the body of Christ coming together, and we corporately are then a picture of that sacrifice of Jesus Christ. That's what's going on. And when we offer ourselves in that way, then we're actually able to to do these things where we're using our gifts for the corporate body of Christ all as a whole, okay? So corporate worship is really important, and it's so often missed. And it's, you know what, some of it is just the fact that our grammar doesn't do us a favor in English because the U's are indistinguishable in the Bible between the plural and the singular, so we just miss it. It's like, oh, it's something as simple as that sometimes that we just don't realize what's going on. But that, that interchange of plurals and singulars and understanding which one's going on there can actually make a huge difference in the way that we even approach worship. Okay. All right, sorry, I could go on and on about that. But corporate worship involves the proclaimed word of God. Colossians chapter 3, verse 16. And before you think that this is only talking individually, like let the word of Christ dwell within you richly and... That should be an individual thing. We should be pursuing that in our quiet times, in our devotions, that kind of thing. But it says, singing to one another, right? With songs and hymns and spiritual songs. Yes? Oh, that's a corporate thing. Interesting. Second uh, Timothy chapter 4, verse 2, the proclamation of the word of God. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. By the way, in season and out of season is not when I feel like it and when I don't or I'm like having a bad day, or that's not what it's talking about. Although it would be kind of nice for pastors, like, oh, yeah, uh, even when I'm having a bad day, that's not what it's talking about. It's when your people don't want to hear you, and they want to, that's what it's talking about. That's out of season. (laughs) In season is when they do want to hear you. Out of season when they don't want to hear you. Uh, When they want to have their ears tickled, right? And they, they don't want to listen to the word of God. You need to continue to preach faithfully. Uh, Thanksgiving. 
is involved in corporate worship. We Ephesians chapter 1, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's, uh, with every spiritual blessing, He's blessed us. We thank Him for that. Uh, 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 18, give thanks in everything, for this is God's will for you. Prayer. We give prayers, even in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 2, talking in a corporate setting, that would be done on behalf of all people, even for kings and for those who are in authority. Uh, we give praise, like Psalm 150 verses 1 and 2 says, Praise Yah, praise God in His sanctuary, praise Him in His mighty heavens. And also, we have worship that involves edification. Like Hebrews chapter 10 says, We gather together corporately to edify one another and build up one another. That's why COVID cannot take down the church and say, Well, you just, it's okay to separate as the church. You can't do that because it's actually destroying a key aspect of what God has called us in worship. We are supposed to gather corporately because that's the only way that you can truly edify one another in the body of Christ. The Lord's Supper is also commanded in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We see this as one of the center points of worship of God and our remembrance of Christ and His sacrificial death for, on our behalf. So when we apply this to ourselves, and as we conclude this section here on worship, it cost Christ His life. If worship can cost Christ something as dear as that, then it should cause us to, to define worship for ourselves as something that will cost us something as well. It's going to cost us, right? And it should. It should be all in. And so that, that's our theology of worship section there. And I think it's a great setup for the next section because we're now we're going to talk about Christology, which should now... Now that we've been informed on how to worship, it should really give us that way forward as we walk through the attributes of Christ, that we would worship, worship Him because of these things. I'll switch over here on the PowerPoint to Christology section here. And switch over my notes over here. Here we go. All right. I guess I should open the floor just really quick on that section. Any questions on theology of worship or anything that maybe I missed or was confusing? Is it good? All right. Very good. All right. Christology, part one. Now, the, as, is it, as it is scripted in the syllabus, there's a Christology, part one, and then there's a Christology, part two. And like I was saying... Christology Part 1, I haven't even looked at Part 2 yet. I'm sure it's probably huge, too. Uh, this one's a pretty long section, and rightfully so. So we are probably going to be covering this in two parts. Um, yeah, so look at the time. Like, yeah, definitely two parts. I don't think we'll get through it all in the rest of the time here. But we'll, I'll try to go through this uh, fairly quickly because I want to make sure we get through all of these lectures in a timely way. But let's uh, talk a little bit about some introduction here to Christology. <clears throat> The cultural opinion of Jesus and who he is. And you know that it is a smorgasbord of opinions on who Jesus is. Um, Even in those who really call themselves Christians and that they're Bible-believing Christians. A culture wants, in many ways, to tame Jesus. To not make him out to be the, the ruler and authority of all the world who will slay his enemies like it communicates in Revelation. We have like the heresy of the fact that Jesus is just here to fix your life. He's like a fix your life guru, right? We've got that. Uh, We've got people who are also in the, the heretical camp that believe that Jesus was just a good teacher. He was a moral and good teacher, which truly ignores claims about himself that actually you would have to admit that he's actually ludicrous for claiming that he's God if he's really not. Um, Or that Jesus is my best friend. Um, That actually denies his justice, that he's he's just a friend, but he doesn't really deal with, he doesn't put people to death for sin. Uh, but he actually does. Or that Jesus is about social justice, right? There's that whole aspect. 
which denies the need for redemption. And here's an important thing when it comes to social justice. It denies, and there's these two concepts in the Bible. It denies the vertical at the expense of the horizontal. And you're like, you may wonder what that is. Some of you are nodding because you understand what I'm talking about. But um, the vertical is, is one's individual relationship with God, or even just like a, a, a corporate one's standing before God. <clears throat> and the, the vertical, there's actually different books of the Bible that it's really cool. You actually go through this and you can see how like different books um, more emphasize vertical over the horizontal. For instance, Psalms is a very vertical book, right? It's like, I cried out to Yahweh, and Yahweh heard my prayer, right? We relate with those because we're in a very individualistic society, okay? So we approach things very individualistically. But Proverbs is a very horizontal book, yes? Because things that I do actually affect physical outcomes around me in the world, yes? And that there are, there are things that God is doing to bring about a more... Uh, macroscopic solution to all of the problems of this world and that how I live wisely in this world affects there are certain outcomes that come as a result of that. That's horizontal. It involves relationships that we have with people at the horizontal level, but the vertical is more of like the relationship that I have with God, so to speak, okay? And you can even see this like in like Kings, like First and Second Kings. It's a very horizontal book. It, it deals with the outcome of the blessings and curses of the Mosaic Covenant, right? It's very horizontal. Uh, as opposed to Chronicles, if you've kind of been wondering, because like Chronicles and Kings look a lot like each other, Chronicles is very vertical. Because its focus is more on the vertical relationship between the king and God and between the people and God, uh, as opposed to Kings, where it's a little, quite, quite horizontal in its approach. So, social justice really ignores, downplays, or denies the vertical at the expense of the horizontal. Because it's going after the social fixes of this world, trying to fix everything on the horizontal level, with little to no concern that the heart needs to be changed first, vertically, before God. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Right? That helps, hopefully, in, in a short way, demystifies if you had any issues with what's going on with the social justice and maybe we should buy into this. We, no, it's because it completely ignores the vertical at the expense of the horizontal. Also, in the same vein, when we think of Jesus as being simply concerned for the poor and the needy, which has been uh, something that's been going on for a very long time in church history, and that there's been a lot of emphasis on that fact as well. And again, Jesus is concerned for the poor and needy. By the way, Jesus is concerned about justice. Of course, that's true. But again, this denies or ignores the vertical at the expense of the horizontal. Uh, There's more that's going on. Okay, so... What we come away with here is that you cannot pit Jesus and doctrine against each other. You can't do that. This is so important. People do not want to put the the term doctrine and Jesus in the same sentence in our evangelical culture. Because doctrine to them is just stuffy data that doesn't really matter, right? Uh, And that's the furthest thing from the truth. Doctrine is simply just the word teaching. It just means that you're actually getting the true facts about who Jesus is. You've got to get those right in order to actually know who he is and actually approach him properly, yes? And in fact, that's the most honoring thing you could do to a person. Like, you go out with your spouse right, or your boyfriend or girlfriend or your fiancé, right? And it's like, I don't want to know anything about you. I just want to be here with you, right? It's like, that's not what anybody wants, right? They actually want you to know them and to know the things that they want you to know about them, right? Wouldn't we approach Jesus in the same way? Like, we actually care about what you've said about yourself? Well, then we need to go to the Bible and actually figure that out, right? Um, but this whole idea of pitting Jesus against doctrine, uh, there's, you know, the mantra, I, I just, I just want to follow Jesus. I just want to follow Jesus, Doctrine and theology, those terms, and those just, they just divide the church. I don't want to even deal with them. We hear people say that a lot. 
But the fact is, is that you cannot say, I just want to follow Jesus without actually engaging in the knowledge of who Jesus is, the doctrine itself. You have to actually have those go one in the same. Any discussion of Jesus is by nature a discussion of the doctrine of Jesus. So when you say, I just want to follow Jesus, but I don't really want to deal with doctrine, well, then you're going to follow something about Jesus, which means you've probably invented your own what? Doctrine. You're still doing doctrine. It's just your own version of it. And that's really cutting to the core of the issue. It's just you don't like what the Bible has to say about Jesus. So you don't like the doctrine of Jesus. So you actually don't like what Jesus has to say about himself. Which means you don't really like Jesus at all. You want Jesus, another Jesus, right? That's what it is. Uh, there's a quote from Thomas Oden in his book, The Word of Life, page 5. He says, quote, This is the incomparable person we are trying to study whose extraordinary life we try to understand, and the closer we make him the object of our study, the more we become aware. This is awesome. The more they become aware that he is examining us. Oh. This is really interesting because at the end of the day, you're like, oh man, this is my, this is my opportunity to learn about him and to examine him. And the more that you study him as a Christian, the more you begin to realize he's actually watching me and examining me. This is a person who I owe my life to, who I submit myself to, because he's actually, he's really there, right? So get doctrine, get the doctrine and teaching of Jesus right. Otherwise, you are preferring a view of Jesus of your own and ignoring what he is teaching you about himself. Be careful of that. Oh, sorry, I forgot to put the quote on here. There it is. Okay, there's Thomas Oden's quote on that. Very insightful and powerful um, statement there that communicates, I think, very succinctly uh, what's going on when it talks about uh, when, we, when we engage in a study of Jesus Christ. The pre-existence of Jesus. We're going to start from there, kind of work a little bit like chronologically through who Jesus is. We'll start with his, with his pre-existence, which is a fascinating study. And we could actually take weeks and weeks to study this because we can go into the Old Testament itself and just start engaging um, uh, a study of Jesus from the Old Testament. Which at first you might be like, I didn't know that Jesus was in the Old Testament. But he is. Okay, that's what's incredible about it. <clears throat> but you have to pay attention really carefully to some details. But in terms of the Gospels and their attestment to the pre-existence of Jesus, we see this all throughout the Gospels themselves. <clears throat> the Apostle John in John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, by the way. Oh, man, I could go off on this one. But um, how does John start out his Gospel? In the beginning. beginning. What is that supposed to point us to? What other book starts with in the beginning? Genesis. Genesis. Wow! And then he starts talking about light and life, which are terms that you see where? In Genesis 1 and 2. Is it a coincidence that he does this? No. Because, hopefully, hopefully this blows your mind if you haven't heard this yet, but John's outline is walking Jesus through Israel's Bible chronologically. So it starts from the beginning of Genesis, and then it works through the patriarchs, and then it goes into the wilderness wandering period, and then it goes to, um, I'm missing a couple of details here, but the monarchy period and so forth. And, the, and it, it's incredible to see this, and we see this theology of Genesis from the very beginning. We even see the six days of creation at the beginning. It actually talks about, like, you know, on the next day, on the next day, on the next day, that's three days. And then he says in John 1, and then three days later, you got how many days? Six days. And then what happens? A wedding happens. You're like, oh, wait, six days. Oh, man was created, and then there was, oh, yeah, there's a wedding. Right? So there's a lot of details in John 1 that point to this, the fact that John is walking through this. But at the very beginning, we have a reflection of Jesus being the Word, which we would then understand from Genesis 1 that that is the Word, that when we see, then God, then Yahweh, or then God said what? Let there be light, right? This Word is really, the power of this Word is really coming from the Son. He is the one that's actually creating all things. And then we see this uh, throughout the New Testament extrapolated for us, Okay? 
So, the Word was before everything else, as it communicates. The Word was with God. I mean, this is just John 1.1. 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Okay? And we see this word, um, it's the, the Greek term logos, from which the Bible software got its name, right? Logos Bible software. Logos is used in a very personal sense. And logos, you could obviously just say, well, it's just a word. It's just, you know, something that you say. It's just an inanimate object kind of a thing. But logos is used in a very personal way here. We got a personal tone here with he is the logos of all creation. He is the one that has the power and the authority and the personhood to give life to everything. He is the agent of all creation. And so we have John the Baptist testifying and uh, testifying about him, and he says, "He who comes after me ranks higher than I, because he was before me." You're like, well, wait a minute. John the Baptist was born first, technically, if we get our chronology right. Except that John realizes this one is other than just human. He is fully human, sure. But he goes way beyond that. He has a pre-existence that goes way before, eternally before. John 1, verse 30, John says, This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks higher than, than I, because he was before me. So he says it again there in John 1, 15, and then John 1, 30. Christ himself, his definitive statement to the religious leaders of his day, really his enemies... He says in John 8:58 before Abraham was I am not I was. That's an interesting point. It's not just I was existing before Abraham, it's that I am, which kind of gives this almost like unbounded concept of like there's that Exodus 3 concept I am who I am has sent you to them. I am who I am, Yahweh. Um that's where we, we understand that these I am statements are really communicating something very divine here. So this is a, a claim that is very explicit to his pre-existence. He's saying, I'm existing before Abraham. Uh, my existence then, therefore, is superior to Abraham. If we go off the logic of John the Baptist, he's superior to me because he existed before me. It's kind of that, um, and there's a lot of cultures that still practice today. The older individual, right, is the more superior or honorable individual, yes? Uh, that's the honor-shame concept, right? If you're older, then you, have, you show a deference to the older person. We don't really do that in the United States today. We're, very, again, very individualistic. Apparently, that's the theme today. I don't know. But uh, that's, that's what's going on. So, uh, but we have Jesus saying uh, that before Abraham was, I am, which is communicating that I'm superior to Abraham himself. I'm not just another human being that just comes after Abraham in his line. And it shows that he has an existence of a very different kind than Abraham did. He also, um, Christ communicates that he existed with the Father long ago. Uh, like in John 15, 17, verse 5, and now, O Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world even existed. Or John 17, verse 24, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given to me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Jesus also communicates that he came down from heaven, like in John chapter 3, verse 13. No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Or John eight twenty three. Uh, he said to them, you are from below, I am from above. So even just like his location is communicating, we're not talking about the fact that he's just human, just from here. He's coming from a source from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world, he says. 
even the sent statements that are used uh, in John, and we see this um, like in John seven twenty nine, or the one here I'll read here in John eight forty two. Jesus said to them, "If God were your father, speaking to the religious leaders who were opposing him, you would love me, for I came from God, and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but." He, that would be God the Father, sent me. He sent me. Okay, so there's the sending terminology that communicates his pre-existence. And then you can even um, kind of see this even implied in Matthew chapter 23, verse 37. This is really interesting. Because in, I, I didn't really think about this until I saw this in the notes when I was studying earlier this week. But when Jesus, and I love this passage where he has this heart for Jerusalem, he has his heart for Israel, and as he's nearing the end of his ministry, and he's approaching Jerusalem, he looks upon the cities of Jerusalem, probably from the hill there, and he says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. Now, you have to understand in the context here that he just got done saying that um, the religious leaders of this day will be held accountable for the blood that they are shedding. They will shed Jesus' blood in a little bit. They will be held, held accountable for the blood even going all the way back to the prophets who were shed. Because of all, because basically they're falling in line with how Israel operated with all of the prophets who were sent to them, and they kept killing them and putting them to death. And he says, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zacharias, right, or Zechariah, the prophet. Um, so, in other words, the context here is not just that he's talking about the shedding of blood during Jesus's lifetime. Notice in, and I I know you may have your Bibles open there, you don't have to look at it, but notice what he says here when I read this. In Matthew 23, 37, he says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills its prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. Now listen to that. How often I would have done this. What is he referring to? He's referring in context to all of the times that Israel in the past historically has killed the prophets and rejected God, rejected their God. And Jesus is saying, I, how often during those times I would have what? Gathered you. What is that implying? I was there. I existed at that time. This is an implication of his preexistence. We also see this in the, the epistles communicated to us um, in terms of his preexistence as well. He is described as the humble one in Philippians chapter 2 and 2 Corinthians chapter 8. He was rich, like in 2 Corinthians 8, but he became poor. Well, what do you mean he was rich? If he was just a human being and that's it, then he was just born, right? And then what do you mean by he became poor? Because he's always been poor, right? It like, doesn't make any sense, except that he had pre-existence when he was rich. Or Philippians chapter 2, a beautiful hymn, a theology here. Think this among yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who was, although he was in the form of God. Oh, he was in the form of God, and he did not regard equality with God something to be stolen. Like he's like taking that right from God. No, he actually believed that he... He could actually be equal with, he could actually call himself equal with God. Yet, even so, he emptied himself. And uh, there's been a lot of good teaching recently here at this church on that, that word there, emptied himself. It doesn't mean that he let go of his deity. We need to be really careful. That term, empty, is, it may not even be the best translation. The word actually just literally means to make himself of no repute. It's the word that you see in 1 Corinthians 15 when he says, our faith is vain if the resurrection didn't happen. Yeah, It's like he made himself vain. He made himself of nothing. He made himself of no worth. And that really communicates very clearly what Jesus is doing when he becomes a man. It's that idea of addition um, by subtraction. Did I get that right? I think that's right. right. The idea is that you add something and you're actually subtracting something because you're taking on a humble state but you didn't lose any of the deity in the process. Okay? You're taking on something where you become of no repute, of no worth. He is also described very 
specifically as the preeminent one in Colossians 1.17. He, uh, verse 15 says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. We could get more into that on what firstborn means, right? For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and in- invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. So now you got, He's the creator, so that should definitely communicate pre-existence. And then verse 17 says, And He is before all things. So there's even the chronology. He's before all things. And in him, all things hold together. Wow. That's... That's got to be pre-existence. It's, it's shocking to see there are some in heretical, small heretical camps that actually believe Jesus didn't even have pre-existence. Like, he was just born. In the, like, like, literally, he didn't exist prior to, you know... Eight, uh, sorry, it would be BC four technically, or uh, four BC. It's technically on the timeline of technically when he was born. Um, like he didn't exist before then. It's like how do you how do you even reconcile these clear statements in the text? And then he's described as even the spiritual rock that was uh, leading Israel in the wilderness in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 verse 4 they all drank from the same spiritual drink and uh, that they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ so he actually communicates that very clearly that you have Christ in the old testament and uh, he is embodied in that rock, uh, that rock metaphor so to speak or 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 9, says we must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did. Isn't that interesting? It says that they put who to the test? Christ to the test. In the wilderness. He was there. Okay, that's important. So, the point is, is that we're seeing references to the activity in, of Christ in the Old Testament, but we don't have necessarily a name that goes with him. A name that, you know, it's like one name that sticks to him yet. And obviously, we'll see that in the New Testament. Now, we have more to talk about in the Old Testament, okay? So, there's the throne room vision scene in Isaiah 6. And, oh, goodness, we could spend the rest of the time talking about this. Um, let's turn our Bibles over there for a second. You got your Bibles? Yeah. I never like to go through a whole session before, without cracking open the Bible at least a little bit because it's really good, especially during a, a BTI session because this is a time for us to study together the text. Um, it's not just like a sermon that I'm preaching here. This is something where you get to engage the text, see it for yourself, have those aha moments, right? And I want you to be... Um, latch onto the text, not onto me, right? That's the point. You need to be, you need to get your information and get your, build your convictions from the text. That's important. Not just because, well, Jay said so, so no, Jay's fallible. He can be wrong, right? The text is what we're, what we, we uh, need to get our, build our convictions from. So Isaiah chapter six, uh, and you know this passage well here in the vision scene that Isaiah Beholds, it says in the in the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord. Now it doesn't say. Now if you got your LSB Bible, you're probably now you now kind of can tell, right? Because like it would tell, it would say Yahweh if it was Yahweh, right? It's not Yahweh. It does say Adonai. It just says Lord. But this is very interesting because Isaiah's not there yet, building the point that we've got. Yahweh and this one as the same, but we are seeing that he's actually communicating very clearly that he's talking about a distinct member of the Trinity here at this point. That's why Adonai is used. I saw the Lord sitting on the throne, and what is the next phrase there? High and lifted up. High and lifted up. That's a really important phrase that we will see reoccur in Isaiah. And we'll look at that in just a second. And it says the train of his robe was filling the temple. And then you have the seraphim in verse 2. They're calling out to one another. And they're covering their, their feet right, and their, their head and so forth. And they're flying around. And they call out to one another in verse 3. Holy, holy, holy is Yahweh of hosts. Now, interesting, because you now have Yahweh there, yes? But who are they flying around? Adonai, on the throne. Yes? That's interesting. And notice what also says, the whole earth is what? 
full of His glory. The whole earth is saturated with His glory. Now, when you understand that terminology in the Old Testament, um, we, it's really easy to want to spiritualize that. Well, that's okay. So that's happening right now. So they're flying around. They're saying the whole earth is full of His glory. Uh, and to kind of spiritualize, well, okay, so like in a spiritual sense, I guess the whole earth is full of His glory now. But is that really what's going on? Would you like look at this world and be like, the whole earth is saturated with the glory of God? We would look at creation and probably say it's a reflection of the glory of God, for sure. But what do we see throughout the world? Sin, death, and destruction. Is that really the fullness of the glory of God? No. So what is this referring to? This is actually referring to a future event of the millennial kingdom. This is what's happening. He's actually witnessing the millennial kingdom. And this is incredible because now you have him sitting on his throne. Now, turn over to Isaiah 52. Isaiah 52. And we'll see this even more directly. Now, uh, let's get a reader for this one. I'd love to hear someone's translation on this. So maybe someone can read Isaiah 52, verse 13 for us. Yeah, Aaron, yeah. Behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. Aha! Do you hear that terminology? He will be what? High and lifted up. Now, he's talking about who? My servant. Oh, now the servant, there's a whole theology on that. Like, well, who's the servant? Because often we'll see the servant is clearly uh, Israel, and it can't be, you know, in, in some instances, it's like, well, I can't be referring to the Messiah. Because it'll say, like, my servant is the one that disobeyed. <laughs> it's like, well, that's not the Messiah, right? So it's like, what? But then there's other times where it's like, well, that can't be Israel either. Because it's like, you failed, Israel, so I will send you my servant. And it's like, where are you, who are you referring to? Right? So. Here we have the servant, just kind of bring it all together. The servant, at its core meaning in Isaiah, is Israel as they should have been. That's the core idea of who the servant is. It's Israel as they should have been. That's usually what I... Or it's... Obviously, there's... Uh, sometimes we'll use, you are my servant, Israel, and you failed, right? But kind of bringing it all together. It's Israel, and then it leads into this notion of the true servant ultimately brings the servant Israel into who they should have been, which ultimately begs the notion, is this really the true Messiah? And, of course, it is, yes? And we see the New Testament pick up on this. It is the Messiah. But notice, this is the servant who will be what? High and lifted up, just like it says in what? Isaiah Six. So who is Adonai? Who is the Lord there in Isaiah 6? It's the servant. It's the one who is representing Israel and the world. And this is what John picks up on in John chapter 12. So turn your Bibles over to John chapter 12. I know that I've parked here for a moment, but I think that there's some just rich truths that we can dig out and really appreciate here. I'll take another reader here. I'd love to hear the translation on this one as well. This is good. So, oh, I'm sorry. John chapter 12, verse 39. Yeah. 39? Yeah. Yeah, thanks, Cody. Therefore they could not believe, for again Isaiah said. Oh, yeah, sorry. And you uh, keep going through verse 41. Yeah. Aha! Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory. Ah, interesting. And he spoke about these things. And 
he refers to there, he quotes actually Isaiah 6 verse 10 back in verse 40 where he's blinded their eyes. He's hardened their hearts so that they should not see with their eyes. They should not understand with their heart and they should turn and be healed. And we see that reflected actually back in Isaiah's time too as well. So we have this whole theology right now of what's happening in Jesus' day is a repeating of events of what happened in Isaiah's day, which is, happens in scripture a lot, which is really interesting. But you have this repeating and that they're following in line with their ancestors before them and doing the same things. And it says, and these things Isaiah said because he saw his glory and he spoke about him. And the only one in this context that seems to fit that is Jesus himself. It's the only one that really fits in here. Because the whole context is that they were not able to believe in who? In Him. In Jesus. In Christ. Himself. And so we have a testament here where John is saying, I am testifying that the Adonai on the throne, who's reigning over all the earth, and all of His glory fills the earth, and Isaiah witnessed that, that is Jesus Himself. So this is a great testament to the fact that we see Jesus as the throne room scene. And then we can tie this into other visions that we'll see here in a little bit. But incredible stuff. Okay. We also have the angel of Yahweh. Oh my goodness, we could spend the whole rest of the spring on this one. Uh, because this occurs quite often in the Old Testament. And, uh, you know, there's that kind of whole notion like, who is this? You know, the angel of Yahweh. Is it just Yahweh? And it's just... He's just calling himself the angel of Yahweh, or is it like an angel from Yahweh, or, um, or who is this? Is this the Messiah? And we see indications throughout the Old Testament that this angel, this, in other words, this messenger, you call it angel or messenger, is identified with Yahweh and at the same time differentiated from Yahweh. Not differentiated necessarily in terms of like, well, he's inferior, he doesn't have as much power, like not that way, but just the fact that it's a different person. There's like a different personhood there. And at the same time, he's also identified with Yahweh himself. And he receives worship from Moses. It's so interesting. We actually have that indicated to us in Exodus chapter 3. It says the angel of Yahweh is actually the one that came and filled that bush that Moses witnesses. And then Moses literally gets down, right, and worships and removes his sandals because he's on holy ground. He's on divine-like ground. Okay, so we have some implicit statements that are like, okay, there's some deity here going on. He's equated with God. This is a really interesting thing because it's the angel of Yahweh that, well, God appears to Abraham and says, sacrifice your son Isaac. Okay, so it's like Yahweh, it says Yahweh says that. But then when the angel of Yahweh comes and intercepts Abraham at the moment that he's going to, you know, sacrifice his son, uh, the angel says, uh, now I shall certainly bless you because you have not withheld, you, you basically have gone to the point where you've not withheld your only son from me. And that's the angel of Yahweh saying that. That's not Yahweh saying that. Like, it doesn't say the term Yahweh said. It says the angel of Yahweh said that. That's interesting. Um, he receives worship from Joshua, Joshua chapter 5, which is... Um, Really fun. That's another repeating of events from the burning bush situation because he says, remove your sandals, it's holy ground. Um, We have um, no appearance uh, after the birth of Christ of the angel of Yahweh. We just don't see the angel of Yahweh after Christ is born. Isn't that interesting? You would kind of expect after all of those incidents where the angel of Yahweh appears to... Um, to people in the Old Testament. You would expect to see him appear in the New Testament frequently, and we just don't see that happen. And we'll finish up with these two quick things here on this slide, and then we'll be done for today. The messenger of Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. We have there Malachi 3 where he says, Behold, I send my messenger, and we would understand that the messenger in this case is John the Baptist, right? I send my messenger, John the Baptist, and he will prepare the way before me. 
And the Lord, and that's the word Adonai there, the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says Yahweh of hosts. So it's very interesting because you have Adonai equated with this person who is going to come to his temple and you have Yahweh talking about this as though he's like separate from that. So you have Yahweh and Adonai and you have this messenger of John the Baptist and so you have this implication of there is this this uh, distinct member uh, who seems to be involved with God who is going to be sitting on the throne in Jerusalem. And then you have even what's described there in Matthew, or sorry, Micah chapter five, verse two, which you may know very well from obviously Christmas narratives and so forth. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Really. What else could that mean except that we have pre-existence going on here, pre-existence of the Messiah, okay? All right, we have a lot more to cover in Christology, and I hope that's encouraging to you because this is a wonderful subject to cover. But we're out of time for today, so let's pray, and then we'll go to the main worship service. Father, thank you so much for your Son, our Savior, God, man, whom we know well, and you have showcased your glory to us by revealing yourself to us in your word, and that has opened our eyes to behold you as you really are. You are the one who makes the invisible God visible. You are the one who showcases loving kindness and truth, grace and truth. And you have invited us to be your brothers. And at the same time, you are the exalted one to whom we worship. And so, Lord, we thank you so much that we have that opportunity. And we pray, Father, that we would love your son that much more. And that we would love the sacrifice that he's made on our behalf. And that we would recognize that his sacrifice should compel us to also make sacrifice uh, on our behalf to you that we would make um, worship we would worship and participate in worship that would cost us something because you are worthy of it we pray this in jesus name amen